calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Look at us. Two weeks in a row of a live podcast. How exciting. So we're very excited to be here. How are you doing, Steve? You know, I'm doing great. This, you know, there are challenges always, but I have got four weeks to turn in the Star Wars novel and things seem today will be a real test of of how of how it's going i have to sequence some things and polish some things and i'm going to work on that 50 pages of of correction and structure and be sure that it's in proper book format and then i'm going to go in and start working on action scenes i just i just That's decided, fun for you. let me get the action scenes perfect because star wars fans will forgive an awful lot if your action scenes pop so Amen. I, will, I will get that and and because all the characters are connected to one action scene or another I will also have a chance to to pop them to life a little bit more. Then really all I'll have to do, if I get that stuff right, all I'll have to do is follow each of, let's say, five major characters through the entire story and take a look at their arcs and how everything looks from their position and whether or not their interactions are good and and be sure that I'm playing with the Star Wars tropes properly. Do I have the aliens? Check. Do I have the droids? Check. Do I, do I have the Jedi? Check, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all good. 
Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I have some things that I have going on, but I'm very, very excited because we have that rare listener voicemail and it is so sweet. I just have to play it for you right now. It's from Justin. Thank you so much, Justin. Here's what Justin had to say. Hey there, Tanavarine and Steven. This is Justin from Northern Illinois. And I just wanted to send a quick but all-encompassing thank you to both of you for everything you've done for the genre, for everything you've done for the arts in general, and for everything that your podcast does for people like me. And I know I'm speaking for tons of people here when I say just, I sincerely appreciate the time and effort you put into the show, the encouragement you provide so freely and openly, and just the overall warm celebration and the vibes that this show gives off. You know, I listen to this show when a new episode drops. It's my go-to listen on my hour-plus-long drive into work. And I love every second of it. And typically then, a day or two later, I'm listening to the episode again during a few lunch breaks. I'm taking notes. I'm highlighting. I'm checking references. I, I mean, just your podcast has become gospel when it comes to creativity and the writing and reading and just horror world. And I thank you so very much. I know I'm not the only one, but I needed to make sure that you knew that I know how amazing you guys are. So thank you. That's that's great. You know, all I know is that Aww. Yeah, it that feels that feels really good. You you have an intent and you take action and sometimes people get what it is you're trying to do and that makes it all worthwhile. It it really does. And we have a great guest today that we won't hold up too much longer, but first really quickly, let's just talk a little bit more about you know how we do. What's going on? Gotta keep it peppy, keep it church. happy. That's right. We're taking everybody to church today. And I was just having a rare moment with Steve where I was praising an executive's feedback on a script. And trust me, that does not happen often. So we're uh, revising a pilot right now. And, you know, I've never turned in a, a first draft, even a first draft where I felt like, oh, man, this is not it. This is not doing what we want it to do. It always feels like it is it. And it is what we want to do. So when you get those notes back, it's like this deflating thing. Sometimes it's like a punch in the stomach. You have to step away from it, process, grieve, and then come back with the fresh eyes. And with fresh eyes, I'm just really enjoying his instincts, you know? And and yeah, he's absolutely right. I thought we had amped up the emotions at the end of the scene. But if he's not feeling it the way he wants to, let's turn that up to 11 and see if we can make it even pop more. So that's what I'm doing. And we're hoping to turn that draft in this week. So uh, that revision be this great. week. That'll be great. Yes. I mean, there's just a certain amount of trying to clear the schedule so that we can get into the holidays, you know, when, when it's time to do that. The what? <laughs> no. Christmas <laughs> yeah. is coming. Yeah, the holidays. Oh, yeah, that's great. yeah. Oh, we so have, to, we, we have to have that conversation. True. Um, but let me, you know, it's this week. I want to burn this week. I want to work really, really hard this week so that I can coast just a little bit for the last, you know, for the next four weeks after that. Exactly. No generals. There's so, there's so much to week. celebrate this year. I mean, yes. you know, we the, came out of the pandemic, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, Jason took his first college class. The, the strike is I, over. 
Let's we do amen it. to that. That writer strike. Yeah. Right. After strike is over, thank God. Yeah, it's all you know. And Whew, then I, what a year! Trying to set yourself up. The idea being to set ourselves up for the best twenty twenty four we can have. What is it that we want? Who is it that we need to be to get the life that we want to make that move? These are important questions to ask so that we can just appreciate where we are, but still move forward with integrity. Absolutely. And I'm ready to introduce our guest. Yeah, are you ready for me to introduce? Because we have such a great guest today, as yes, I always do. say, but it's especially true today. Yeah, I think it's an important guest. Yes. And I wrote this bio pretty much myself. So correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. Aaron Covington has an MFA in film production from USC, where he went to school with director Ryan Coogler and later was a co-writer on Creed. He also also worked on Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse. I heard that on a podcast and wrote for NBC's Grand Crew, which was about a group of friends who shared stories from their lives unwinding at a wine bar. He made a short film I also can't wait to ask him about called The Last Real Magical Negro. I definitely want to know what that's about. Welcome to our studio, Aaron Covington. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, good what to a, have you what here. What a crowd. I know, it's a hot crowd. It's a hot, hot crowd. Well, they've been waiting outside in line, some of them overnight, really, for this for this seat. Uh, I feel the love. I feel the love. So welcome. We we ran into you at an NAACP Image Awards luncheon. I want to say maybe it was 2016. It was sometime around when Creed was out. Mm-hmm. And we had a very brief conversation then. And I told Steve before the podcast, this is the conversation that should have been our follow up because we should have been like, hey, we should have coffee. And this is the conversation we would have been having if yeah. we had followed up and had coffee. I mean, a couple of years have gone by, but I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you a little bit more. Yeah, likewise. Glad to be here. Really, really honored to be a part of this podcast and to talk writing and yeah. learn, not only to share what I know, but to learn a little bit. Well, oh, yeah, okay. the sharing, you know, I, I want to put something out there that I owe you a debt of gratitude for something that you accomplished that nobody else has ever done. And that is that Creed was the first movie in American history to get across the $100 million mark with a black love story, with, you know, a black man having an actual love scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one had ever done that before. Only Creed one, two, and three. Those are the only oh, ones. The yeah. only the only movie in which an Asian man got it would be Crazy Rich Asians, but not Denzel, not Will Smith, nobody else ever what? got across that line. That Hundred million dollars domestic. I've been watching that statistic for thirty years. He has. Trust and me. You I've been here for twenty five of them. And I am so it, it it represents a number of different things. It is a sign of cultural acceptance and people willing to extend their humanity. It is also a sign of excellence because the first person to break through there had to bring it. You yes. had to, and I also quite frankly thank Sylvester Stallone for for letting you play within his oeuvre, within within his universe. So he was bringing previous images and a previous audience that you satisfied capital. even as you subverted it. Mm-hmm. So I I just want to say nothing but respect. That was an you created a, an important cultural moment. How did this come to be? Man, I had no idea that that was true. And I'm thinking, how do I market that as a love doctor or the relationship? 
guru from you humanized us. Hey, it's I mean, for you, it might just be storytelling. But unfortunately, this is an industry where, like, say, in the 90s, even when Halle Berry and Denzel Washington were the number one black box office draws, they never appeared in a movie together, much less had a love scene together. Well, that hundred million mark is so mythical, too, right? It's like you know, getting the championship or something. So yeah, it is, and I, th- that is the the rough standard for wide cultural acceptance. Even though inflation has degraded the value of that hundred million dollar right. mark, right? I'm still willing to claim the victory. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. no, no, we'll take it, we'll take it. But but you didn't know that, you know, you didn't know that, and and I would imagine that wasn't your goal specifically going into the project. So obviously we want to talk about yeah, what, what you've done since and what you did before, but let's start with Creed okay? and the significance of it. What were the most important elements you wanted to embrace with this film? Most important elements we wanted to embrace with Creed were really this, the aging mentor kind of thing, the aging mentor, like where Rocky was, where we saw him was analogous or similar to mentors in our life, teachers, fathers and that thing and kind of them letting go of the reins and as a young man having to step in and go for your dreams go for your try to reach your potential you know uh ryan and i are both pretty much you know homebodies in a sense where when you talk about the relationship aspect it's like that's something that was just very important to us i mean rocky had adrian so we were like we need to see a black relationship that people can also relate to that would feel real real to us in terms of genuine emotion caring for somebody and not just like because he's a hot boxer or because you know i mean i think those things also existed but i think in most boxing movies even more recent ones like the fighter and stuff there's like a relationship a core relationship and a female presence that can motivate and drive drive the protagonist so and then looking back on it it was like we really were in the mode and at the time of like creating a kind of black black superhero you know so it was like making him real well rounded but also and putting him through the ringer you know as much as we could within the context and the form of this movie especially in the final fight where he takes a number of blows and you know doesn't even win the fight but it was about his endurance and his resolve and his determination to to make something of himself which I guess you could say we were trying to do at the same time in our in our own lives, coming pretty fresh out of film school when we actually started writing the movie. So, well, I know that Stallone has made it very clear that Rocky was was an autobiographical metaphor for his own struggles, but it was also he considered that in a very real way, Adrian was the the heart of that movie. That 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 Rocky came to life when he fell in love with Adrian, and he saw his life completely differently, and it that transformed him. So to a degree, you know, we, and I've talked with Tananari about this last week, that I think that her latest novel, The Between, is having the kind of, the, the reformatory, is having the kind of success it's having because she is building it on top of, an, of a family mythology, that, that she is, she's tapping into something that's real to her, and that's what powers the skill. So what you tapped into was what you're moving through school and you're coming out and your hopes and dreams and and and, and optimism and wondering you know and, and gratitude for mentors, you know and what 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 was the emotional 
depth? What was the emotional power that you tapped into to to drive this film? Well, it's it's hard to say, really. The story was definitely mirrored where we were at the time because we were in grad school, so we were approaching 30. And in the movie, so was he. And he had a job, and he was in L.A., and things weren't bad for him. And by the same token, I'm from the Midwest, and I could have stayed in Ohio and or moved back to Indiana, where I'm actually from, and found a job and worked or, you know, done a lot of things. And Ryan had his degree, and, you know, we could have had different lives, but we decided to try to pursue something that is near impossible. So so it, even in early drafts of Creed, he was a little younger, and we were like, it just didn't feel right. So making him kind of at the age where it's like you follow the path in life that was open to you, that you were available, that you knew about, and realizing that's not the path for you. And with him having his, you know, Apollo being his father, and he had to kind of reconcile that in his mind, I think we also had different things we needed to reconcile, this desire to tell stories and really the challenge to see if we could do that. This was the arena for us. And it was like, if we don't do the grad school thing and if we don't try to write this movie, then, you know, I don't know. It just was like, it would be a regret later in life. You know, you could see, well, I just stayed. Yeah. You could see your old life pulling you back in. That unless you unless you took a unless you did something powerful, big moves, the gravity well of your previous existence would pull you out of the Hollywood scene and back right. to something familiar and safe. So you were looking for a way to launch yourself out of the gravity well of what you what you knew, what was familiar, into something that had to feel kind of scary and unknown. You said near impossible because you know the statistics that are, are right. really against you. In terms of, of getting getting in there, how did you find the courage to commit to something that most people, well, most people, frankly, don't have the stones to do to to do what you did? And if I could add, put their heart out there, if I could add to that, trying to get Stallone on board too as a piece of that, I would think is very important. So, yeah, how did you get the stones? The stones, naivete. <laughs> <laughs> A little blind luck, you know, it's like, you know, USC does a great job of selling itself, even if the school doesn't do it itself, maybe just the aura around like USC film school and George Lucas was there and everything. So mm-hmm. getting accepted there, I do think makes you feel akin to getting a scholarship at like a quality, like a quality football school, for, for, for example. So you feel like you can do some things that gives you like a little bit of confidence there. And then I think there's also the feeling that there is no bottom, you know, like I said, there's other things we could do. You know, I was working a lot of security jobs. I'm a really big guy. I was like, I can always do this. So in a sense, I felt like I had a fallback that I didn't really need to have a lot of preparation for, not like being an engineer or being, you know, where I had to be also build a career in a way. So it was kind of just, you know, there was, it was a risk with little, not little downside because there was a lot of downside and like student debt and things, but the alternative felt like it would always be there, I guess. And you would just live a different life. So, so you had a fallback position and because you had a fallback position, which I call your, you know, taking care of your bills, that's your adult self because your adult self knew that the worst that would happen is you'd still survive. Right. You're, child self, your creative self was then free to dream. 
and to say, let's go for it. So yeah. I, I really, I really like that. That that's that's a that's a healthy syntax. First, take care of survival. How will you survive if it goes wrong? And then go for it. I mean, at this point in your life, at that point, how old were you when when this was going on? Late twenties. Oh uh, yeah, 29, 30. 29. Yeah. There has to be a certain sense of if not now, when. Yeah. You know, this was a moment, a defining moment in your life, but you were not risking disaster because you're taking care of your adult world. You you knew that you could, you knew you could make a living. Well, it was kind of like my imagination knew that there were uh, just so many different ways to live. And I wasn't yeah. like, I have to be rich to be happy. I was like, man, if I have to go back, my mom was in living in DC at the time and holler at Whole Foods and get a job. Like I could do that. I could live other yes. ways and, and, and figure it out. And then it was also the investment. Once you get into USC and then you have to start paying for USC, it's like, if I'm spending this money, I have to try every outlet to achieve something, to make something. Otherwise, I can't live with that kind of waste without the effort behind it, you know? Were you involved in the process of approaching Stallone about doing it? I was not. Uh, That was a very, I mean, it's one of those kind of movie-making stories that's, you know, part of the Hollywood lore in the sense of the success and the steamroll that was Fruitvale Station led to Ryan meeting Stallone's agent at the agency when he when he was meeting when he was talking with his agent. So it was kind of oh, fortuitous and nice. how they ran into each other and then the ball started rolling. So I didn't meet Stallone until much, much later. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine. Erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Yeah, it's also, you're talking about mentors? What you have there is that Ryan used one position, Fruitvale Station, to attract the attention of an agent who moved in the same circles as the agent of the person you wanted to meet. This is how it's done. If you're not born inside of those connections, you have to find people who do have those connections and attract their interest. So it's, it's fun to look at the, I like to look at the strategy that was employed to get into a business, which as you said, is impossible to get into. Right. And that's how it happens with any, any industry too. If you're in banking, it's like, you don't just meet the top bankers. It's like somebody introduces you yes. and introduces you in whatever industry you are. So, well, we, so the you world met was Kugler at USC and Kugler did Fruitvale Station. Correct. Did you work on Fruitvale Station? No, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. So, wh- how did it, how did he reach back to you? And we had and started, he wanted, he wanted to do this movie with you. No, we had started developing Creed before Fruitvale Station happened. Oh. So, we were, you know, I tell the story. Ryan was the first person I met at USC at our orientation. <laughs> How did you spot him across the room? I wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he came up to me. The nod. Um, <laughs> no, he, he was already there. He came up to me and he was like, "Hey, bro, you hoop?" I was like, uh, "I play a little ball." He was like, "Yeah, I play football." <laughs> so we were bonding over, you know, the sheer connection of kind of growing up in sports and also being black, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking in our like second or third semester. It's like, man, we need to do a project together. You know, everybody. Also doing projects together. I was like, yeah, we need to do a feature. Like, forget these short films. He was like, I got an idea. So the idea was basically Creed. He was like, what do you think? 
do you, he was like, do you like Rocky? I was like, man, I love Rocky, Apollo Creed. So we talked about the story then. This was like 2009 to 2010. Okay, long time in the making. Yeah, so this was like in school and we opened up, you know, some Google Docs and started sharing ideas about it. And we would talk about it. We were roommates for like our last year at school. So we had a lot of time to go over like details and dreams and fantasies about the story. That's what that What's happened. A, that was what like is a years story, What what is a story choice that you did not that did not end up in the script that you thought would have been would have been great fun? I mean, since you had to have thrown away a lot of ideas. Tell us an idea that you threw away that that's something that, that would be would have been fun. Really just I, know, it's I think it was just like more stuff of him in LA was kind of the big thing. Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, at first we toyed around we toyed around with if he was younger, he might be the grandson and not the son of Apollo. So then we like at one point build a whole, his whole family like who is his actual mom? That's Apollo's daughter, and she's married to this, and they have other kids, and he's yeah. And it was like I mean that mm-hmm. could have been a whole different world to play with, not necessarily better in any way, but just well more confusing for sure. That's why yeah, we, maybe we that would have been Golden Gloves. Yeah, that was a different miniseries that we didn't. <laughs> we well, didn't well, Aaron. Aaron, in a lot of ways, this is such a Cinderella story, you know, but but in addition to Cinderella stories, Hollywood is is full of horror stories. So if Creed is a as a high, which I imagine it was a huge milestone for a young guy right out of film school, almost. What were some of your more challenging and lower moments, not necessarily around Creed, although that's fine if there were some setbacks, but but just in general. You want to go year by year? <laughs> month by yeah, month. just your top, your bottom three. Your top three. Uh, so I guess, you know, right after, right after Creed, I had a short, not a short, an indie feature that I had written called Frank the Clown. And that had gotten some traction. I had met a lot of people who read it. I really liked it. I had talked to Tracy Morgan for a bit and he was like, man, this is kind of cool. I could be down with it right when he was through doing his TV show. Mm-hmm. And then that didn't come together. So. That was definitely something that I would have really been looking forward to doing some directing too. So, yeah, we all yeah. have those. That's for sure. Do you still want to direct? Yes, yes, for sure. So, do you have projects, you know, feature projects with you attached as director and probably writer that you're, you know, I'm not asking you to talk about it at all, but, but are things cooking there for you? I mean, I have the scripts. I don't know if they're cooking right now. <laughs> and then I, you know, I did a lot of writing too and updating first from the lockdown <laughs> when we had all yes. that time. Yeah. And then in, in the strike too, when we had all that time. So mm-hmm. I definitely have the projects, about two, two or three projects I really feel like. So it's a features I'd be ready to go with. So it's impossible to get in. And even after you get in, there's still the struggle is still real. You still have to keep working. Work to stay. You know, just, you know, you have to keep doing the scut work. You have to keep, you know, keep. How do you ordinarily we move to this question at some point, but I just feel like this might be a point talk about it. How do you deal with disappointment? Man, so many strategies. I always tell people, for one, I'm always working on multiple projects. So that way I'm not riding the roller coaster of any one project. You know, if one is going good, I don't have to get too high because I'm like, I'm still working on something else. Amen. And, and, and when the bottom drops out, I'm like, well, there's something else that I'm, I just thought about or that I'm working on that I feel excited about. So I try to keep an even keel just, just by that math of like not doing ups and downs of any one 
one project so or one idea. You said something important there. You don't let yourself get too low. You don't let yourself get too high. You're kind of staying, you want to stay on an even keel as you move. So you take several different projects and each of them is like a fiber that you then braid together into a rope and you're hanging on to that rope and climbing that rope so that even if one strand breaks, you still have enough to sustain the climb. Yeah, still hanging on. What what kind of work did you do on Enter the Spider-Verse? I was a writer consultant for three or four months in the early stages, very early stages of, of like the script and getting to just getting to the second draft. When the project was still pretty chaotic <laughs> in a lot of ways, as projects are and as animation especially is. So it was kind of like trimming down a first draft and really getting to starting to get to what became the final film. First draft was huge in the movie. You can tell there's so much going on, but. I also learned a lot just being in that project. Uh, Peter Ramsey was in that project, learned a lot from him. Yes. Uh, it was a fun, fun time. You know, Marvel, the MCU seems to be struggling, whereas Spy- Sony's animation of Spider-Man is getting nothing but praise. So yeah. there's something that they're doing right there, you know, other than hiring people like you, my friend. Can you tell us a little bit about the development process that you went through there? Because when people who've never been through this might not have any real idea. You got called in to work on this film, and what happened? Well, at the beginning, so I got called in, and I read the script in a room. (laughs) Oh, they wouldn't let you have it. Okay. (laughs) You can't take it with you. They're like, hey, just read it. I was like, okay. And they were like, yeah, just stay in here. Let us know when you're done. I was like, what? I said, yeah. I was like, well, it's going to take a while. They're like, yeah. I mean, we're here. So anyway, I read the script and I talked to a couple executives, just general ideas. I wasn't pitching anything specifically, but we had a really good conversation for about an hour. And I think there was like another couple meetings. And then they brought me on. And when they brought me on, it was really a process of collaboration. Animation is such huge collaboration. Working with Bob Preschetti, who was a director the sole director at the time, which that changed because the project was so massive. And then the story team and the editor and the animators, the animation story team, which is like seven, or eight people with a lead story editor. And we would just have a lot of meetings looking at the script, the animatics that had been done. Uh, also the comic books to see how the character had been developed and just talking through what that could be. I would write a few pages or have a few suggestions and more meetings. And that was pretty much the process. So did you, when you saw the movie, did you feel that your DNA was all over it? Yes. Yeah. Well, there were definitely some things that I had called attention to in my time there. And I don't know if they came to them from my suggestions or from their own. Either way, great minds think alike, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was it sounds like a writer's room. You know, you, the point is to create something great, not necessarily to feed your ego. Yeah. And then they had other people come in later and Lord and Miller came on full time again after I had left. So I'm sure things had changed and they had a lot of different conversations and I don't know who takes credit for what, but there were definitely story things and issues and just complications that I was like, we cut right through that with this. I I think that'll make the, the story a little simpler, a little easier to follow. And those results were also on screen. So that's great. But, Whatever way it happened, I feel uh, validated. I feel like that's a a different experience. So you went from primarily collaborating with your friend, you know, Brian Kugler, to a bigger collaborative environment. Was was that really good training for a TV writer's room? Because you have also been in a a TV writer's room. 
Yeah, for sure it was. For sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> what was the biggest challenge of being in your first room? I mean, what, I'm sure you remember it. I, we were in our first room together at this top of the year for uh, Brian Fuller's Crystal Lake. <laughs> and even though we both had produced television scripts freelance, that's totally different than sitting in a room. You know, I found the writer's room. It, I was telling somebody else this. The trick about being a writer in the writer's room is understanding that it's, it is a nine to five, like most jobs. And some of the like ideas about Hollywood or writing or creating and everything, it's like when you're in a room, you clock in, you're there all day. See, somebody gives you, a, you know, takes a lunch order. Yes. You eat lunch and then you start to doze off and you got to <laughs> maintain your energy. You got to eat a light lunch, you know, so you can make it through. And then at five or so, generally, you, there may be long days or whatever, but a lot of jobs, you got to work a long time too. So understanding that it's like you're doing something fun and you really like to do, but a lot of days you're just kind of sitting in the room, stuck on a story, stuck on a joke, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to get through it. And it can be tough. And sometimes having a lot of people is tougher for some parts of the writing. Sometimes writing is easier when you're just, you know, in a dark room by yourself. How oh, diverse sure. was the room? It was really, it was really diverse. We were mostly cool. black staff, but we had um, a couple of Asian writers. You know, we had different people with different sexual preferences. We had, you know, short people, tall people. Hey, that's <laughs> that the kind great. of diversity. Nobody talks about that diversity. Well, that's good. And and also, you mentioned it's comedy, which is a bit different from what I understand. I mean, did the whole group have to approve every single joke? Is that no. how that worked? No, no. Our showrunner, my good friend, who was also a good friend, we kind of lived. Me, him, and a couple other, a few other people kind of lived Grand Crew in reality before the show. We were getting together at this wine bar in the neighborhood all the time. We were like, and he was working with Dan Gore and trying to develop a show. And we were like, this might be the show. Us coming here, talking about our, you know, dating or our lives, career. This might be the show. So he has final, you know, if he likes to joke, but there is a, almost like an improv or stand-up consensus, you know. Mm-hmm. You pitch a joke and people chuckle and laugh. Then they're like, it gets in that first draft and we see if it makes it. Then you do the table read. And if it survives the table read, then it then it makes the show probably. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's our table great. reads were kind of performances, maybe more because it's a comedy. Yes. But like the execs there, sometimes they're on Zoom and then you have a meeting right after. And it's like, you can just feel in the room if a joke lands or not. And sometimes they're written in a way where it's like, it needs to be performed a certain way. And the actors are seeing the script for like the first or second time. So they might not be there yet. But if the joke doesn't land, it might not even matter. So you still have to like deliver on the page for a first time reader or listener, which is interesting. What is, what is your creative process when you're working in a room by yourself on a script separate from how other people are going to react to it? What, how do you create? You know, it's interesting because this changed so much just in the last, just over the years as you write more. And it's not even just experience. It's like you have to finish projects. A lot of people get stuck on one project and it's like you have to get to the finish line. So as they get to the finish line, I develop different different strategies. But the things that are consistent are like, what is my, I'm a kind of a premise-based writer. So I'm like, what is the premise here? What am I even saying? And what is that connection to? 
something in reality. What is what ties the premise to something that I'm experiencing or society is experiencing? And then I try to come up with a beginning and an ending. What is my what do I want this to end like? What do I want what do I want to feel at the end? And then I kind of fill in the gaps. So you start with a premise, you connect that premise to something real, something real in your own life or in society. Yeah. Then you ask yourself where you want to end. Yeah. And then you ask yourself if this is the ending, where would I begin to create the the, the biggest? Is that roughly the syntax that you go through? Roughly, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. I, I, this, I have a question about dream projects. Not necessarily something you're working on, but if you didn't have to worry about budget or relationships with people in the industry, what would your dream project be right now? Well, I, I'm definitely working on my dream projects because I've been really focused on, I'm going to give you the whole thing. I'm really focused on black iconography right now. Okay. Break it down. In the sense of like, you know, so many of our heroes for black Americans are are real people. That's kind of what we, we always are fed, right? It's like, oh man, Obama is Oprah, you know, <laughs> it's like real people. But I think a culture also needs its fictional heroes. And it's not that we don't have them, but I think that we don't always have the space to create them or to promote them or, 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 or to grow them. And I also think sometimes, I know I've thought a lot of times in, in the past, things that get a little too, that aren't as accessible as an icon character usually is. And sometimes it can seem simple, but then why have they lasted for a hundred years, you know, for 50 years? So what so, conclusions do you come to about how an icon comes to be? That's a tough question. <laughs> that's a really tough question. But I think a lot of it's timing and that's, that's kind true. of an intangible thing to, un- to understand or to even put in, in, in a practice and it's something to work on. And I also think there's a, just a familiarity. You know, the stories that have lasted for thousands of years are just repackaged as another character or as a new thing. And we're just seeing them in a different form, even from like a Sesame Street character to a horror movie character to Superman or something. So for me right now, I'm working on working with a good buddy. It's got Kevin Sweeney on a horror project that we hope is like a mass Freddie Jason kind of thing. Oh, like, shoot. You the said queen horror. Of horror over here. The queen of yeah, horror. That's You're looking to thing. create an iconic horror. You're looking to create a horror icon. That's that's one. And then I got a, a, a black superhero I'm really excited about creating that I'm trying to find out, trying to figure out what's the best outlet for him and the best way for me to to do it but i got a character and a and a story around a black you know a black superhero that mimics other other powerful singular powerful characters is his black i would assume that his blackness is integral to his being it's not just painted on afterwards how does his blackness anchor in our world so if an executive says, does he have to be black? You can look at him and say, are you out of your mind? <laughs> right. Well, it's, like I was saying about, you know, premise and then connecting to the real world, like with this character, for example, he grows up black. You know what I mean? Like the way other characters, like a lot of superhero characters are either like made in a lab or they're from an alien planet. Right. And then they on Earth and they grow up in a small town or they grow up wherever. But it's a completely different experience if you grow up black in those same towns or in those same okay. things. So for him and his use of powers, it's like as a black person, you're often told to you have to hide you, you 
for our generations and things, we often had to hide our abilities and and things to 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 exist. You know. Yeah. Yes. My, my uh, mother told me. So yeah. My my mother said to me once that you know, Steve, if you let white people know how smart you are, they will kill you. Right. <laughs> so his idea about hiding his powers and how he wants to use them are based on that reality. Yes. You know. So he's not thinking like I want to be this great hero. He's like. Well, I'm just living here, you know, we can figure out how to get back to where I'm from and more of a peaceful person because as growing up black, he's been been mistreated. There have been times when he's been tempted to use his powers, you know, against nefarious forces like a like in regular life that you and I might experience if we experience racism. And sure, he's had to withhold that and show a kind of restraint that we don't usually see from superheroes. Sounds like it's going to be subtle and you're going to need to weave that into his DNA carefully. And I can't wait to see what comes of that. Sounds right. good. If I you ever wanted eye, we get that script done. If you want eyes on your script, you got two hey. people here who'd be interested. Absolutely. Well, don't be surprised if I send you an <laughs> We won't be surprised. I'd be delighted. We, we, would, be delighted. we wouldn't say honor. it if we didn't mean it. I love reading scripts and uh, yeah, we wouldn't say it if we didn't mean it. Have yeah. you ever, you talked about your coping strategies and as soon as you said the word strategy, I knew you, okay, you got coping handled. But before you had all your strategies in place, were there ever moments of discouragement where you thought, you know what, screw this town and and maybe go back to your mom's at DC or back home in Indiana. <laughs> not, 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 not really, but only because the totality of my twenties was so tumultuous in terms of like stability. Mm. You know, I graduated in 06 and we had a recession, obviously <laughs> in 08. Yes. So my whole time, and I started at USC in 08. So there was a couple years when I was between schools just applying for jobs. So I kind of knew what the struggle was, you know, and even getting out of grad school before Creed came was like, it was a two year period. I must've had like five to 10 jobs or something. You know what I mean? So I kind of knew already had found ways to cope with the realities of life, the ups and downs of, you know, having gainful employment and then not, and then looking for a new job and then that job not paying enough and then what could come and what could go. So I was pretty much, already keen on reality by the time I was in the industry. So I knew it was going to be a, be a fight. I knew life was a fight at that point. Yes. You didn't go in with any illusions. <laughs> Would it be reasonable to see, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is looking for the metaphors that people use for their lives. Some people, some people, life is a fight. Others, it's a race, a dance, you know, a struggle, you know, quicksand, you know, a garden. When you said you knew life was a fight, Allow me to ask you, and you've mentioned mentors, who are the most important mentors in your early life? Who told you that you could? Who told you that your dreams were worth pursuing? Because you always have that, you know, I've got to survive. I've got to you know, do what, what my father did. Or, you know, yeah. Somebody set you free, or did you set yourself free? I kind of set myself free. I would say my mom always had my back, but she didn't know what I was trying to do. Uh, so, so she had to kind of catch up. After, after the fact, when I would, you know, <laughs> relay what was happening to her or what was possible. But in terms of pursuing things, yeah, I was kind of, I kind of had to figure it out and unlock my imagination myself. And I, th- I think about that a lot. And how did that happen or why did that happen for me? And I, I'm honestly not a hundred percent sure. I don't know if I'll ever land on the answer, 
or what it was. I had some good friends too that were very like very smart. This guy Bernard, who I talked to all the time, that really gave me an outlet that I hadn't had before. We met in college to talk about the expanse of the universe and things like that. <laughs> so, well, you know, there are two reasons why you might want to continue to ask that question. One of them is so that you can set other people free. And the other one is so that you can continue to set yourself free because the tendency is going to be to play it safe. You created a certain amount of success. It was impossible to get here. Let me do this again. You do that again in the wrong way and you become a hack. You become the person who's trying to step in the same piece of water twice. Whereas the secret is to do the same thing in terms of what was the thing that set you free? Let me do more of that. What gave me the courage to act? What gave me the courage to speak the idea that one part of my head was saying, well, that's stupid. And you say it and the people in the room say, that's great. You know, that you have to keep setting yourself free from your own chains in that sense. So kind of what I want to know next is Mm -hmm. how do you motivate yourself to chop wood, carry water, to do the things that you have to do every day to keep your career going forward. You wake up in the morning. How do you organize yourself you know, between there and you, and sitting in front of your desk doing the work? Because you know damn well there's so many people who have ideas, but they can't actualize them. They won't do the work. They can't put the work out there. How do you be you? Um, man. <laughs> Yeah, wow. We're looking up under the hood on this podcast. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Pop, yeah, the, yeah, pop yeah, the hood. Let's, let's take a look. We don't have enough time to get into get into everything. And Three think, most important things. I think it is important for me to look at, to not be wasteful in the sense that I, maybe I mentioned earlier about, I went to film school. I have to honor that, you know. And then, yeah, we wrote, created, and I was successful. So in a way, I feel like I have to honor that. I keep working and keep trying to prove myself. I also think that I understand and maybe having a little bit of sports background as part of this, that you do always have to prove yourself. So that is deep within me. What sport? I play basketball. <laughs> you play basketball. Yeah. So you did, did your, did you have a coach in basketball who was a specific, was a, a really great influence on you? No, I didn't have good coaches. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'm listening to you, Aaron. I'm sorry. Like, and I feel this way about Steve too, because his mother not only didn't understand, or it wouldn't even be accurate to say she didn't understand his dream. She was terrified of his dream to go into the arts. I don't think I would have been a writer if if I hadn't had my mother propping me up like every step along the way, like as long as I can remember making copies of my stories and sent passing them out to our friends and mm. giving me the writer's market every year and you wow. can do it. I, I was blessed in that sense. So you are really a self-made artist. It, was there a filmmaker, an actor, someone, even if you didn't know that was something you were shooting for that you look oh. back on now and you're like, I wanted to be kind of like this. Well, I, I, I would say I believe things people said. And there's a, okay. there are definitely a couple of things that stick stick out from from people and I always wanted to be connected to the top of the culture in a sense of like what is happening or filmmaking or so it was like, you know, John Singleton said mm. in the interviews, he was like, you know, I came from, came from Compton, yada, yada. So I didn't, I couldn't afford all this, all this equipment. He was like, I heard the stories about Spielberg. He was like, but I could always write. It didn't cost anything to write. So that is a, an answer to a question that has always rung in my head. It's like, you you can always write. 
I have had teachers, English teachers that were like, not mentors, but they were like, your writing's pretty good. <laughs> and That's for good. Me, it, for me, it, it, it only took that much, you know, to be like, huh. I think I was so... Who so... was the first adult, the first person who said to you, I think you can do this? Well, the first example like that would be, I actually had an eighth grade English teacher who told me that my writing was like interesting or at least like easy to follow. Okay. So it wasn't we'll like that. glowing praise, but it was enough. It was enough. There was like the singleton quote. And then I had a college English teacher that was like, oh, you're actually a pretty good writer. Mm. There was a, we didn't follow up on that in any way, but I just took it as like, that means something to me. Yeah. That's, that's great. I love it you. Mentioned- awesome. oh, it matters. Brother. No, I don't want to interrupt you, but you mentioned John Singleton. I cannot tell you how many people have come through this studio singing John Singleton's praises. So that is significant. And shout out once again to the late, great John Singleton, who inspired people both in person, people he knew and people he had never met just by his walk. Yeah. Yeah, But John Singleton got pushback. And I had a a chance to talk to Sam Jackson about Shaft and that Singleton was getting pushback from the studios about whether or not about Shaft's sexuality. Bringing it back full circle. Here we go. Basically, Singleton could not do what he wanted to do with that with that movie and and get it past the studios. What I kind of wanted to know is, did you run into any problems with Creed? Did anybody suggest, well, you know, he he doesn't have to have a a romance? I mean, was there any of that, or did you have a, a clear a clear field? A clear field. I think they understood the. The Adrian Bianca connection, mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And oh was, yeah. Was there a particular executive that you'd like to give a shout out to? <laughs> no. Okay. And if that's an awkward thing, we can we can rosebud that question if we you don't. like. <laughs> no, 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 no disrespect. They were all they were all great on the on the movie. Okay, but, good. Yeah, I just didn't. I don't have it. Okay, fair enough. I would say that at different points, any executive producer on the film, they had their moments, or at least that I experienced with them. You know, Ryan obviously was in deeper with him because he was directing the movie. But like, somebody would say something on shoot day one, and somebody would say something in pre-pro, or I'd have a conversation with somebody in the middle of the shoot. Like, there was a lot of good moments in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say any one, you know, was a champion more than the others. But I was going to say the other quote that really got me was Kubrick. And in a Kubrick interview book, he was like, it was the bad movies that really inspired him. Because he was like, I could at least do that. And sometimes I think about the expansiveness of the industry. And it's like, there are so many different ways to exist in this industry. Or in an industry of storytelling, which may not just be film and TV. So there's so many different tiers. And I look at that too. And like, well, where could I exist and what could I do? Everything isn't. You know, I can't help movies, but think you, know? you and Kugler might be part of the first generation of black filmmakers who seem to be looking at themselves more as filmmakers who happen to be black than black people trying to find some way to get through this. In other words, you're standing on the shoulders of the people who struggled against monsters, whereas your struggle seems more like just a normal artist's struggle trying to get in. Yes, there's additional weight against you, but... It, there's a there's a little bit higher fence, but I can jump it. 
And that's, is that, I mean, I, is, is there any accuracy when you talk, when you talk to older black filmmakers, is there a part of you that says, because you laid down your bodies on the barbed wire, I get to crawl across. That's great. Cause I was thinking about this literally just like yesterday or a couple of days ago. And I think that is the privilege of this era is that there are fights that have been fought and I'm able to exist as an artist trying to make it and not having to fight the same, those original fights. Like, I think that's very, very true. So it's important for you and for others to understand that the struggles that seem so piercing, so soul devouring are meaningful. That 100%. if you can, because you have the, the, the right to do what you're doing and you, you created history because others labored sometimes in the shadows and sometimes at great cost to change the world for you. And so is that part of who you're proving yourself to is those who came before? I don't know if I feel like I'm proving myself to them, but I definitely want to, you know, fit, fit in those shoes, I guess, as a metaphor to say, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers is Robert Townsend. Yes. And the things he did, I think. Hollywood shuffle. I think he kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Yes. He created iconic properties. You know, his whole career was just like Hollywood. Five heartbeats. Five heartbeats. Meteor Man, which is overlooked and people don't talk about, but he created a black superhero. Mm -hmm. You know, that should be franchised out now. I'll just say that. (laughs) But the point is that I do look at them. And again, going back to, I was, you know, I was raised on athletics. It's like, how does LeBron see Jordan? How does, you know, whoever knew see the generation before them? It's like, you want to be able to walk hand in hand with their legacies. Beautiful. I, I, I want to ask about a, a peak moment, you know, I, like for us, for me in particular, I remember we had moved to Hollywood maybe six months previously. And one of my books was in development at Fox Searchlight, as it was called then. And we had lunch with, it was Forrest Whitaker, Blair Underwood was there. Blair Underwood, wow. I, I, Forrest Whitaker introduced us to Steven Spielberg. The president of the company came to the table, said, we will make this movie. Now, spoiler alert, they did not make this movie. <laughs> <laughs> we have never worked with Spielberg. It wasn't about anything coming out of that meeting. It was more, that meeting was like a ping from the universe telling us, hey, you guys are in the right place. Things right. will happen here. And I still think of it warmly, even though really, in some ways, nothing came of it. Do you have like a peak moment that you go back to again and again like that? You know, I was thinking last night, this was actually, so when I met, I had the privilege to meet uh, Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. shortly after shortly after Creed. And he was like, yeah, Creed was great. He was like, but I read that Frank the Clown script, man. That was fantastic. I was like, yo, Kobe Bryant read a- You didn't know he read it? Indie movie script. I didn't know they had sent it to him. He was- Trying to well, he's done a lot of storytelling, obviously, before he passed, and he was wanted to talk to young, you know, to to a storyteller. And Creed had come out. Somebody sent him Frank, and he that was is like, great. I thought that, I thought that script was crazy, man. It was great. So I was like, that that definitely meant something. He's not necessarily a yeah. filmmaker, but he's at the top of the at top of the top of the heap, you know. You know, I, talks about you know that that moment in you know when I got had the chance to talk to Spielberg and he admitted that he shadow directed several sequences in a Star Wars movie that that nobody knew about. Um, <laughs> Steve gets people to that. just tell him random stuff, like he just meets somebody and they start opening up their hearts. <laughs> I dig in there. The you, you look at moments like that 
like a sailor on a raft looks for driftwood or seagulls. That when you see driftwood or seagulls, you know you're getting close to land. When right. you start getting moments like Kobe Bryant here, Steven Spielberg here, you know you're heading towards land. You're going in the right direction. What you want is more of those moments. They sustain you. Yeah. They, in doing a transition here, finding the way to take your emotions and your talent and your physical energy and put them all moving in the same direction every day so that you can survive long enough to learn the game and learn who you are and find the way in. Because as you said, there's so many different paths in Hollywood, right. so many different ways to do it. Find your way. That's what our Life Writing Premium program is about. Every week we send prompts to people. We give you suggestions. We also teach you attitudes like what came out in this. You know, notice how many times we're asking you, how do you do what you do? What makes you what you make? What, what makes you who you are? And by listening to podcasts like this and to the material that we have there, people can start seeing the common thread between the artists doing things that are kind of like what they would like to do. Oh, they used this skill to get to this position, this to get to this position. They did, you know, five things to, to see if one of them could work. To start demystifying the process of creativity and success in Hollywood or in publishing is what we're doing. And, you know, Life Writing Premium, that a year-long program, www.lifewritingpremium.com. Weekly you digital like downloads the, uh, yeah, uh, all over the place. If you like this podcast, it's basically us. Sometimes it's video. Sometimes it's speeches we've given essays we've written about characterization about genre so if, if you like this podcast and you're especially if you're a writer and especially if you've been struggling with your writing just having that weekly module coming is a kind of accountability partner for you so check it out at www.lifewritingpremium.com so excited to have had you here with us aaron how can people find you on on in general on the socials i was last thing kind of on a sure. on topic. Yes. <laughs> Please. Dealing with criticism is probably the biggest emotional hurdle in the industry. Yes. How do you do it? And I think one understanding that whatever somebody says, they're responding to something that you wrote. So you don't have to take the words they say personal. You can just go back to your script and it's a chance to improve. And also not being too precious with your work. That makes criticism hard, but you have to share it and you have to adjust and get feedback. Nobody's just sprouting out, you know, we're not just sprouting out gorgeous flowers. Like we need some tending. Your garden needs some tending. So. Oh, that's well lovely. put. No, that's, that's so well put. And I'm still learning that. I mean, we're, we're that's the hardest part. You're right. Dealing with criticism is the you hardest know, part. I, I honestly expressed my admiration, my appreciation for what you have contributed. And what I can say is it's really been an honor to speak with you. And I hope that that, that dream project of yours I hope that it comes to life in a way that really opens your heart and makes you feel like any struggle that you've had up until this point was all about getting you to the place where you could do this thing that has that validates your entire career and will inspire a younger artist to think, maybe I can do it too. Yeah, we, all the things. So that's what we want you to get. And to find me, I'm Bearcov, B-E-A-R-C-O-V. On socials, if you go there, you'll you'll find my my link tree, you know, with all the links. Yeah. Great. Uh, to my website, to my podcast, and to my short film. Oh, you have a podcast too. Okay, fellow podcast. Oh, and I forgot. What's the subject of your podcast? It's called It's called Black Guys on White Movies. 
Oh shoot, we got to check that out. Fantastic. (laughs) We got to check that out. Everybody, go on and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.